All right, so this week we want to recap where we are with Esther and Mordecai and Haman, because what a night and morning that Haman had, right? He had a lot of grand plans from the time he left the feast the night before, and yet everything got turned upside down. So he did like anyone would do, and he went home and he sulked with his wife and his wise men. But he still has plans for the day to carry out. And so we read what happened to Haman, and we even saw what, what happened with Mordecai after the first of Esther's feasts. But what did Esther do after the feast? Any idea? She probably went home and slept and then woke up and prepared for the next feast, right? It was life as usual for her. Um, she was probably still very prayerful, um, but she would have been staying busy in the palace. She may not have even realized what went down with Haman and Mordecai that morning. Right? They're very protected inside those walls from everything outside. That's why the, the eunuchs had to come and tell her what was going on with Mordecai before. Um, and so she may not have even known. But I do want, before we get into this second feast, I, I do want to give just a quick word of, of warning. Um, it can be easy to look at this chapter and to see Esther and her, her role and her courage and see her as the hero of this story. But Esther is just a tool. God is the one that had the plan and laid it out and he used Esther for his purposes and his plan. Now Esther was obedient to God. Esther had her part in making all this happen. She risked her life multiple times. She was very courageous when she calls out Haman in front of his face. But we want to remember that God is the true hero of this story. And, and we, we can't think about today's portion of the story without recalling all the ways that God worked in last week's portion to get us to this point. And so I just want us to, to be remembering that as we focus. And so we're going to start with Ecclesiastes 3, 7. And so Ecclesiastes 3, that's the, there's a time for this and a time for that passage. Um, and, and so the, this one had the time for silence and the time to speak. And so the time for silence has ended, and it is now the time for Esther to speak. Um, and again, that is part of God's plan and timing, and Esther is just being obedient to that. So let's read Esther six fourteen. The eunuchs had to come to Haman's house and bring him to Esther's second feast. Do you think that Haman forgot about this second feast? 
Do you think he hoped that they would forget about this second feast? Probably. Yeah. Haman now had to fear going to the banquet, especially after the words of his wife were ringing in his ears when she said in verse 13 of that chapter, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This is what's going on in his head as the, as the eunuchs come to get him. Um, and Haman obviously has no choice but to go to the feast because he can't say no to the king. Um, and so the, the eunuchs hurried him to the palace and the hurrying doesn't stop. It's go, go, go. There are no extra words or details in this chapter as, and as we approach the, the climax of the story. So Esther 7, 1 through 4. So the moment of truth has arrived. Mordecai had been honored, Haman had been humiliated, but that didn't change the edict about the Jews. And so this is our seventh banquet, that's our seventh feast recorded in the book of Esther. You can add that to your list in the back of your binder. Um, neither the king nor Haman at this point knew that Esther was Jewish. And so had he known the nationality of the queen, Haman may have already acted differently. But at this point, to even come to the feast, at this point, he would have run for his life or he would have fallen on his face and had already begged for mercy from the king before it even got to this point if he had known that Esther was Jewish. Because God had warned Haman through, through his circumstances, through his wife. But Haman didn't heed any of those warnings. And so we know that this occurred on the same day as the two-man parade with Haman. Um, Haman honoring Mordecai, sorry. We don't know the time of day. Um, it just says, as they were drinking wine probably took place in the afternoon. Um, Haman had already led Mordecai around the city, but, and there was still enough time after the banquet for the next chapter, to, for the end of the chapter to occur. So there's still more going on. So it's quite the busy day. Um, but ever since the previous evening's banquet, Ahasuerosh had been waiting to hear the queen's, the queen's request. The, her petition. And so, as was custom, when the wine was served, he broached the subject. 
Now she was still taking her life in her hands at this point because the king could reject her plea and that was the end. The, she wasn't allowed to make her request unless he asked for her request. Even though he had agreed to come to this second feast and even though he was there, she could not bring it up until he had said something. Um, and so if, but if he rejected the, her request, whether he killed her immediately or waited until the 12th month, her death sentence was completely up to the king. Um, but the, the irony in King Ahasuerus' request is he assumed that she would ask for material possessions when she was interested in human lives. But she made it clear in the way that she asked her, that she made her request, that she was depending on the favor of the king. She wasn't trying to tell him what to do. Um, she never took for granted that it was up to him what would happen. She also made it clear that her desire wasn't to please herself, but to please the king. Again, if you reread the way that it is, it says, and if it please my king, let my life be granted. Right? She was seeking his grace. So at, at first glance, she has this, the ceremonial introduction, right? If I have found favor in your sight, O king. Sounds similar to the one she used the night before, but she made one slight change. Instead of saying, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, it was much more direct. If I have found favor in your sight, O king. She knew that the time had come to be direct. And she focused her petition on the fact that the queen's life was in danger and the king had, some, had to do something about it. We have reason to believe that Ahasuerus still loved his queen and didn't want any harm to come to her. And we're going to see more um, evidence of that as we continue through the chapter. But he sat there in her presence he beheld her beauty, and her words moved him. And the wise queen knew that Ahasuerus' willingness to protect his queen and his own, uh, his own dignity could be the sole motivation for sparing a people that he'd already sentenced to death. Right? I, Esther identified herself with her people, not by their name, but by their fate. But she was specific with the words she had used. Remember, Mordecai had the copy of the edict and he sent it in for her to read and to see it. She knew exactly what it said. And, and when she, so she used the words, um, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She was using the words that were from the decree. She did it in part to, to jar the king's memory and to jar Haman's memory, but also to emphasize the horror of, of the decree that was coming to her. But if you look back at Esther chapter 3, when Haman is, is putting all this together, he never once told the king which group needed to be annihilated. Never once. And so Esther was very specific with the words that she used. But these announcements placed Esther in a very dangerous position. 
She didn't know how the king would react, and she was probably uncertain whether Haman or she would have more influence. I mean, again, she doesn't know what just happened. She's put Haman where Haman had himself the night before, right? But Esther continued by pointing out that the king had been paid to issue this decree, again back in, in um, Esther chapter 3, and that if he had sold the Jews as slaves, this payment might have been valid. But to sell them into death and total destruction was something for which nobody had enough money. Basically, Esther's saying slavery is one thing, but murder is a completely different thing. Um, Esther understands the, the delicate nature of her position. The threat against her and her people has two perpetrators, both Haman and the king, and both are present with her. And she must fully expose the culpability of Haman, while at the same time never appear in any way to be bringing charges against the king. And the way that she responded to the king there in verses 3 and 4 shows us that she had really thought it out and she presented it with uh, the utmost tact. Now, I want us to pause because we've now heard the request. And, and I want us to just um, put ourselves into each character's minds. So what do you think Esther was feeling immediately after she made this request? Yeah, she was still anxious to hear the response. What else? Yeah, it would have been very hard to get the words out. Right. Yeah, there would have been peace in knowing that she had done what God had called her to do, that it was now out of her hands, and she had, she had done her part, and that was, yeah, so there would have been peace and relief to an extent. I think she duped or betrayed uh, and then the character qualities of her greatness because of how she presented it. I mean, she, she actually was very powerful. Yeah. To stand up and say that, and then her diplomacy and sensitivity for pleading for herself and for her. Yeah, those are good words, diplomacy and sensitivity. I like those. Yeah. I think, yeah. And one of the things I read, she says that Esther was clothed in strength and dignity. Right, clothed in strength and dignity. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. No, it has not changed. That's right. Yeah, so what about King Ahasuerus? She's made her request. What do you think he was feeling? What do you think he looked like? How was he sitting? What was his body language? Anything? Yeah, shock. Yeah, outrage. Yeah. 
decision. Mm -hmm. But he still didn't know it was Amos. Right. But he shows signs. I mean, because if he would have been angry at the queen, I think he would have really said something at that point immediately. Yeah, and he didn't, uh, he didn't interrupt her. I mean, granted, it wasn't all that much to say, but he didn't like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? He didn't interrupt her. He didn't stop her. Um, but, but yeah, he would have been trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, he would have been confused. And he would, would have been trying to figure out how could I have put her into danger without even realizing it? That's, that's what, what he's thinking. And then there, there was one more person in the room. So what do you think Haman is thinking and feeling? How would he have looked sitting there in that room? Yeah, white as a ghost. Yeah. He's probably starting to put those, those things together that the king didn't quite have all put together yet. Yeah, sweating a lot. <laughs> yeah, he, it was completely unexpected. That's right. Yeah, he thought he was smarter than everybody and he had it all figured out and he was wrong. Um, I'm, I'm watching, uh, just re-watching The Big Bang Theory, the TV show. Hilarious show, completely inappropriate. But, um, so, so I don't let my kids watch it or anything like that, but I'll watch it sitting in the bedroom folding laundry or whatever, right? Um, and then there, and there's the, Sheldon is the, the quirky, they're all quirky, but he's the one that like probably seriously does have an OCD and autism thing, right? Um, and so there was one episode just the other day or like Sunday that I was watching and um, he, he was like, well, I can't be wrong twice, right? Because they had said something, he had been shown that he was wrong with one thing and they were trying to say, oh, well, you know, I think you're wrong. And he's like, I can't be wrong twice, not in one day, you know, not at all, but not in one day, right? So he was sort of in shock. So that's kind of how I pictured Haman as I was, as I was reading was, was kind of like, how did, how did this happen that I was wrong? Because that can't happen. But he is starting to put those pieces together. He's realizing that, or, or has probably realized that Esther was Jewish. Now remember, though, that Ahasuerus approved this edict, right? He had a part in this whole thing um, and was, was truly as much to blame for the death sentence of the Jews as Haman because he didn't, he didn't follow through. It was that omission. He didn't do what he should have done to make sure that he knew what was going on. Um, and, and Esther specifically did not mention Haman initially. She intentionally left him out um, because, well, in a couple of, couple of reasons, but 
Had he known, had Haman known from the beginning and had the king known as Esther was, was saying this, she still didn't know whether the king would choose Haman over her. Remember, 30 days without seeing him, right? She doesn't think she has favor with the king. All those things that are going through those, those insecurities going through her head. Uh, but here she has, she has basically convicted him without identifying him. Now the king wears his emotions on his sleeve as we've seen. And so we know that he would have been visibly angry, right? You can just imagine his teeth clenching, his hands tightening into fists, cheeks probably reddening. Um, and we can hear his response as we read Esther 7, uh, verses 5 and 6. And so what, how did the king respond? He, he wanted to take action. Tell me who this is. He was angry. He was in a rage. And you can tell from his tone. I mean, we're reading the words. It's hard to read like tone of voice from it, but you can see with the words that his tone of voice would have been one of, of anger. He was ready. <coughs> To, to, for revenge. He wanted to destroy someone for trying to take the life of the woman he loved. Yeah, who has dared to do this? You don't say that with a happy voice, right? Yeah, we, we have this paper on the side of our refrigerator that when you're angry, you're supposed to say the word bubbles in the most angry voice you can. Now, if you try that, He's like, bubbles. You really can't because then you start laughing, right? And so that's the whole point. You can't really say who has dared to do this without being angry, right? That's how we can tell he's, he is angry. You know, that moment of truth has arrived. Um, but we have to remember, Esther implicated the king and Haman, because she made it a point to tell him that she knew about the money. The king had to have known that he had approved this decree in some way, shape, or form. I mean, he had to. He was the king. He's the only one that could have approved something like this. He didn't realize it was part of a conspiracy. And actually, one, um, one commentator actually said that the Hebrew word, and granted, I know that they would have been speaking Persian, but they're trying to get a point across in the words they're using in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but one commentator actually said that the Hebrew word for destroy is a homophone. It sounds the same as the word for enslave. And so they're trying to say that even Haman, the, the, that they're trying to come across, that even Haman chose his wording when he was asking, making his request of the king to try and intentionally deceive the king with his plan. So again, we know that the languages are two different things, 
but the but the point there that that idea that concept that the commentators trying to come across with is very valid that the king may not have actually known exactly what he was agreeing to he definitely didn't know who it was um, and we see the way that that Esther makes her request saying you know if we had just been enslaved instead of annihilated. And she would have known the Hebrew word for those things. But even as we read it, um, the Feast of Purim was actually yesterday for the Jews. And um, they, like, like I've told you, they read the entire book of Esther out loud. And if you remember when, um, when the name Haman is said, they either stomp their feet or sometimes they'll give noisemakers to the kids, like horns and stuff to blow to the kids so that you can't hear the name Haman, right? So they would have heard this and they would have known those two words were homophones because this would have been written in Hebrew for them to be reading. Um, and so they would have had that, that feeling uh, that the king might have had. So it's completely believable that the king didn't, didn't know exactly what he was signing off on, still had a responsibility, should have known, is still guilty. Don't get me wrong, but he was much more angry than feeling guilt at that point. But the king had to find a way to save his wife and save face, right? In an absolute monarchy, the king is looked upon as, as a god. He can do no wrong. And the king's question in verse 5 implied much more than who is guilty. The king wanted somebody to punish. Now, Sunday mornings, we've been looking at First, and first Samuel, and now we're into Second Samuel. We're studying the life of David, the early kingship of the people of Israel. And while we aren't there yet, we're going to see in a few weeks the story of David and Bathsheba. And this is one that's familiar to many of us. In Second Samuel 11, King David saw Bathsheba, a married woman, taking a bath. He lusted after her. He called for her to come to his palace. Um, and she became pregnant, and David needed to find a way out. Long story short, he had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed in order to cover up his transgression. And then we get to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel when Nathan, a prophet, comes to David and confronts him with a story. So 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 6.
And so what was David's response to Nathan's confrontation? He was angry and he wanted payback, right? Someone needs to do something and this man deserves to die. King David's response, just like you said, was very similar to that of King Ahasuerus. He wanted to know who had done this terrible thing and he wanted to punish him for it. It's natural. I mean, sin nature, but it's natural. So King, um, so Esther purposefully didn't in identify Haman when she started to share what her request was. She waited until Ahasuerosh asked to point out their dinner guest. Now Ahasuerosh had already received one surprise when he learned the danger of his queen, and now he's hit with another. His favorite officer was the adversary and enemy who had plotted the whole thing. And by announcing Haman as the guilty person, she fully and officially revealed her Jewishness. She didn't have to say the words they knew. Um, and perhaps uh, well, we think about what we know about Ahasuerosh, and we think about um, this all happening. He was probably a bit paranoid Rightly so. Murder was the way to get to the kingship. Uh, I mean, he would have had to have had some level of, of paranoia. We think about um, in, in the book of Genesis with, with Joseph and the, the cupbearer, right? You think about the cupbearer at that time had to taste and test the wine and the food before the king actually, or the Pharaoh actually ate in, or drank anything, right? Paranoia was, was the thing. And so perhaps Ahasuerus is now thinking that Haman's crime had nothing to do with Mordecai. He could still be completely clueless about this stuff with Mordecai, but think that Haman did all of this just to slay his queen. Right? And the way to, to kill off the queen was to kill all the Jews. And so the king is furious. We've already seen that he is a man with a short temper. Um, Esther 1, 12. Right, we've seen that he has a short temper. But on this occasion, as he finds out that his most trusted advisor was trying to kill his wife, his favorite wife, his anger must have been volcanic. His pride was hurt because he had misjudged the character of Haman. He had made a fool of himself by promoting Haman and giving him so much influence. And the king had also erred in approving the decree without first weighing all the facts. Certainly he was angry that he had been tricked into making the decree that meant the death of his own beloved Queen Esther. And he now knew that his most trusted advisor is the one that had betrayed him. And he didn't know the real reason. He didn't have to. He knew he had been betrayed. 
And so have you ever felt betrayed by someone you trusted deeply? Like I'm asking a serious question. So this is yes, this is no. Right, that's what I have to do with my students in, in the classroom. Do you understand yes or no? So have you ever felt betrayed by someone that you trusted deeply? Yeah, now I don't want to know what happened, but how did you feel when you found out? you're crushed it changes everything right there was I, I wrote down there's a loss of security you thought this person was one thing and they turned into something different there's a level of helplessness if I trusted them this much and they could do this what about everybody else what can everybody else do to me there's the level of anger there's the sadness the disappointment can really make you struggle with trust for a long time. And so King Ahasuerus is experiencing these feelings about Haman, but there's also a level, of, uh, an added level of, of fear and anger about his wife, about what's going to happen. And so what do you think Haman's first thought was once he had been identified? He's going to go. Yeah, <laughs> he, he would have known that his days were numbered, right? Haman knew that the king was about to become judge and jury and pass a sentence from which there was no escape. He would have felt doomed immediately because he realized he had not condemned to death just a people from another land, because that never bothered him. But what was troubling him was that the king's favorite wife was also a Jew. And he had no idea. But, it says, it oh. says that uh, he, he was falling on the couch where Esther was, meaning he was begging for his freedom or his life. Uh, was that something they did? Did they go to the knees and legs? So let's let's read let's read Esther seven seven through eight, and then and then we'll get to that, Sandy. So we're going to get there. Just bear with me for a minute. So we've got King Ahasuerus, and what is his first response? He walks away, right? He, he just stands up and walks away. It's a coping mechanism. It's one that we have encouraged our kids to do a time or two or a thousand. Um, he was just so angry that he needed to walk away. Maybe he was processing his conversations back with Haman, thinking through what he had been told. Did I really know this? Maybe he knew all along and was trying to figure out how to save face with Esther and the public. 
though doubtful. Um, maybe he was thinking about the wording. Maybe he was thinking about his conversations with Esther and whether he had, could have had any inkling that she was Jewish. Now, normally, yeah. Because normally he would have gone straight to his, his advisors, including Haman, to find out what they would have him do. But then Haman, he knew that the real power was not with Ahasuerosh, but rather with Esther. And he was in full-on survival mode, and so he goes to the queen to beg for mercy. And Esther was a force all her own. So it was Haman's hatred for the queen's cousin Mordecai that started this whole conspiracy. And Esther wasn't about to abandon the one man who had meant so much to her. And so um, when they were feasting, now we're getting to Sandy's question, the, the Persians at this time and, and later, they would recline on couches at their feast. Um, and so Haman, um, so the queen is, is lounging on a couch. Royal protocol would have demanded that no one remain alone in the presence of the king, of the queen, sorry. And so if the king left, protocol was that Haman was required to walk out that door immediately, if not in front of the king, to not be in the room alone with Esther. Um, in fact, no man was allowed to come closer than seven steps when speaking with a woman of the palace in the Persian Empire. So he should have followed that, the king out that door whether he wanted to or not. And yet he stayed behind and he probably grabbed at her feet and kissed them as he begged for forgiveness. That would have been the custom of the time, would have been to grab at her feet. Um, and that would, that would explain how the king interprets it. Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Because he's supposed to be seven steps away, not even supposed to be in the room, but let alone come back in and see him closer than seven steps away. Um, this, this would have been, um, but the, the grabbing of the feet would have been typical for uh, ancient Near East in, in begging for something, in, in begging for forgiveness for something and, and mercy for something. And so it, it, he was probably down on his knees, reaching and grabbing toward Esther and her couch and the king who's already furious and already not thinking clearly about anything and already in defensive mode for his wife who's been sentenced to death by this man is now going to be even more furious and going to take any sort of excuse he can to pour out even more anger onto Haman. And so there's irony here because Haman had demanded that Mordecai bow before him and now whose feet is he bowing down to? The Jewish Queen Esther, right? A woman who is also Jewish, right? 
Haman had been furious because a Jewish man wouldn't bow down to him, and now he was flat on his face in front of a Jewish woman begging for his life. Did, so did Esther do the right thing by not stopping the execution of Haman? I think so. By not forgiving him. Why? She too was going to be killed. I mean, right. So you got all of this emotion going on about that too. But I do feel it was God's timing. That yeah. It was his plan. Yeah. There's not a wrong answer to that question, by the way. So if you felt differently than Sandy did, that's okay. Um, what we do know is, is it was part of God's plan because he could have stopped it in another way, mm -hmm. right? Just like if she had said no and he really wanted it to happen, he could have made it happen in another way, right? Well, when the king covered Haman's face, that meant he was going to die. Right. Now I'm going to ask another question, and this one we're going to sort of start the discussion here, but if you... Um, if you need to continue the discussion or feel more comfortable with the discussion in your small group, that's okay too. When Haman is begging for his life at the feet of the queen, does begging for one's life equal repentance? No. Why not? I see lots of no's. Yeah. Yeah, in this in this case, he is he is just in survival mode, right? He's gonna say or do anything, um, and that's so. Can one be sorry for what they did without being repentant, without thinking they did anything wrong? Can you still be sorry for something that happened even if you don't think you did anything wrong? Sorry you got caught. Yeah, to get out of the consequences. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he was raised to hate the Jews. Right. And he was he was doing it it is, it's exactly what he was raised to do. This was his opportunity to, to put together everything he had been taught as a child, everything he had experienced as an adult, and, and he probably was more sorry for the consequence than for what he did. He probably still didn't see that anything he did was wrong. Now, if I tell you the name Larry Nasser. Some of you might remember what he's known for, but 
most of you won't, and that's fine. He was the doctor that molested the girls and women on the U.S. gymnastics team, among others. Um, and the ver first victim to speak out about his actions was Rachel Dinhollander. And she gave a victim in impact statement at the sentencing portion of Dr. Nasser's trial, and this is what she said. And she was speaking to him in the courtroom. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true rep repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, pretty powerful statement that she's making. And she's saying, I forgive you, but I know that even though you're saying you feel bad about what happened, you really don't. But once you do, here's where to turn, right? So we must remember that confrontation is never easy. It took great courage for, for um, Rachel as well as Esther to confront the men that harmed them or intended to harm them. But this is the attitude that we must take for them. We must pray that they come to full repentance, not for our sake, but for their own. Haman accused and condemned an entire people for a crime of insubordination that they did not commit. And ironically, the crowning blow condemns him to death. That condemns him to death will be a crime he did not commit. So when the king entered the room, he seized the scene. He accused Haman of trying to molest the queen. And molesting the queen was a capital crime, for the record. But... Uh, he goes in and they immediately cover the, the face of, or the head of, of Haman, which means he is sentenced to death. Um, and so after escorting Mordecai around the city, Haman had covered his head in humiliation. That was back in Esther 6 when he was running back home. Now the king's guards covered his head in preparation for his execution. And so then let's read Esther 7, 9 through 10. And so what Harbona said was, in, in essence, another accusation that confirmed the king's decision to execute Haman. These conspicuous gallows that Haman had constructed were for Mordecai. And it was convenient to use them for the ex ex execution of Haman. So the king was like, oh yeah, sounds great to me. Let's do it. He used it. So 
Haman had let it be known in the palace that he planned to kill Mordecai because this was the king's servant knew the purpose of those gallows. And even with the edict still in effect, there had to have been courage given to the Jews to know that their enemy Haman was no longer on the scene. All of Haman's wealth and glory couldn't rescue him from death, nor could he take any of it with him. So there's a, a lesson here for the nation of Israel that every enemy that has ever tried to destroy Israel has been destroyed. God takes his promises seriously, even if the nations of the world ignore them or challenge them. This does not mean that God approved of everything that Israel has done or will do, but it does mean that God doesn't approve of those who try to destroy his chosen people. And when it says the king's anger, the, the wrath of the king, sorry, was abated, that word is abated is the same uh, word in Hebrew that's used in Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 8, 1 to describe the receding waters of the flood. But now we have the adversary out of the way, but the problem's not solved. The king's decree is still in effect and could not be changed. Haman was dead, but tens of thousands of Persians stood to carry out Haman's bidding. And so we will look more next week as we go to our small group today.